Well, Malachi 3, and just in verse 1. See how I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. It's a great piece of scripture, isn't it? It's kind of comforting, you know. And in Luke we read where uh, Zechariah's song goes on to tell of the Lord coming to offer forgiveness and mercy. It's a great Advent theme. Really is a great Advent theme. But have any of us read the rest of Malachi? Um, most of it is pretty far from peace, uh, forgiveness, and mercy. It speaks about all kinds of other things. It talks about admonition and unfaithfulness and judgment and robbery and wickedness and profanity and, and contempt. And I was curious, where's the Advent theme in all of the rest except for this one little piece or a few other pieces? But setting the stage kind of for what happened and what is happening during the time of Malachi when he was prophesying. We'll just back up and probably most of us know the story. But, but during the time of, of David, the, the Jewish nation really rose to a power of, of prominence and uh, wealth and stability and power and safety. It was a safe place to be. And he, that's where kind of their yeah, was identity. But after David died and his son Solomon dies, the Jewish nation kind of split north and south and, you know, this decline began. What's that? This one's dying? Oh, okay. Well, toast that. Because that's pretty annoying. <laughs> Even I'm not that interesting that we can... <laughs> Anyways, so we've got this, this Jewish nation that's split into the north and the south, and this decline begins, and powers rise in the, in the surrounding areas. Eventually, the north um, was subdued by Assyria, and then the south was brutally conquered by the Babylonians, and the nation was carried away to Babylon, and then the Persians came into the power and, and dominated the, re the region. <laughs> And Israel as a dependent or independent, powerful, safe nation was finished. Um, the promises that God made to Abraham and Moses and Jacob and David and Solomon all mixed up here are seemingly broken. And the hope at first had been in the coming of the Messiah to set up, you know, that earthly kingdom again. But this is at the time of Malachi. This is generations after all of that. And nothing is happening. There was some returnees from the exile. They had returned. But hope was really fading. And the identity of Israel as a powerful free nation is gone. And it was almost like it was Egypt all over again. Where was the God that brought them out of Egypt? Did it matter if they served him or not? And this is kind of the foundation or the framework of the time of where Malachi was. And if you can just imagine, I think I got my directions right. If we took half a wildwood, the back half was the south and the front half was the north and someone walks in and gets rid of a good percentage of them and then drags a whole bunch of the rest of them away into exile and slavery and takes them with them and there's a few stragglers left who become the poorest there's nothing left they were eventually a few you know are allowed to come back but what are they living in? 
There are people living in, in captivity in their own land with a few rights and not much hope on the horizon. Like us, if we broke us up and there was only a few of us straggled back as we're sitting here in church and we're in a nation that's not ours and we have very little. How would we feel? How would you feel if this happened? You're the few that's left that's come back. Despair? Lonely? Sad. Sad? Yeah, it's good. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I was, you know, I was thinking maybe this is how the general population was feeling at the time of Malachi. And Malachi is not that pleasant of a book to read. I think I've kind of forgotten about this. Did I? So, uh, missing one slide, that's, that's kind of the, the scene of leaving in exile and, and what, was, what happened to Jerusalem. And this is the, you know, there's not much left, not much of what they once knew. This is the contemporary time at, around Malachi. Not quite that, but that's the background. And Malachi is not that pleasant of a book to read. Um, God actually brings a whole bunch of charges against his people in how they're living, uh, especially the priests. And one of the things was they were bringing unsuitable animals for sacrifice and in really acting contemptfully for what they were giving. They were teaching really poorly. They were unfaithful. And there's all these charges um, that God brings against them. And there's this part in Malachi where God makes these statements and then the people question, well, how is that possible? And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And and this is kind of how it goes. You know, God says, I have loved you. And people say, well, how have you loved us? And God says, you show contempt for my name. Well, how have we shown contempt for your name? Well, you have wearied the Lord. Well, how have we wearied the Lord? Well, return to me. Well, how are we supposed to return to you? You robbed me. Well, how do we rob you? You've said harsh things against me. Well, what have we said against you? And, and I was thinking, you put this against the backdrop of the time that they're living in. I, I can understand their heart and their cries and their <laughs> what? You know, after all we've been through, what? There's this verbal exchange between God and the people. But what is something that we watch for or should watch for when people... Two sets of people are confrontational, they're angry, and they're defensive. What are some of the things that we watch for? And maybe this is some of my education coming out now, so that's where I'll go. Um, but two people are angry, defensive, confrontational. One of the things we watch for is not really what's being said. That's not so much what you watch for. It's what's not being said that's even more important. It's the underlying current, the reasons, the emotions, or the hurt behind all those words. Anger is generally a secondary emotion. And in a lot of our relationships, we could probably pull out examples of times when we're angry. And that's a secondary thing. The first emotion, generally, is some kind of hurt or sorrow or fear. That's the emotion behind angry. You're upset because of something. You're hurt. You're in pain. 
and you respond in an angry way. That's generally how it works. And you, you've got, then you need, you need this picture of what's happening, why are you hurt, to get through and explain the anger. And there's an expression that says, you know how the expression goes, a picture's worth a thousand words? Well, an emotion is kind of worth a thousand words. Sets the stage for what's going on. So what I was wondering is the underlying question in the recipients of Malachi, of the people. This is my estimation. The underlying emotion, the underlying feeling or thought in that is, am I enough? Are we enough? Are we worth it? After all that's happened to us, God, do you still value us? After all we've been through, how do we know you still care? That, I think, is what is some of the underlying things that are going on with people in this stage. What is the underlying question in, in, in Yahweh's charges? I think it's very similar. Am I not enough? Am I not enough for you? And it kind of reminds me, this whole back and forth thing, kind of reminds me of the pain from two lovers on the edge of a breakup, on the edge of despair. That's what this whole thing reminds me of, pain in both sides. Let's take another look at something else, just to, here's, a, here's an outline, one possible outline of the book of Malachi. And it's in the stages of the book. It's God's love for people, how God, where, where's the honor for God's people among, among them? God's concern about marriage and divorce, God's justice and patience, God's concern for tithes and offerings, God's love for his people, and then there's a conclusion, introduction, conclusion. It's kind of neat how it's arranged, how all the inter, in-between stuff is arranged in between God's love for his people in this book is how it's kind of set up. That's kind of interesting. So let's remove a word. God's concern for offerings. And this is the section where this part we're talking about in, in Malachi 3 occurs in this section of the book. And God is upset because people are bringing really, or the priests are offering really substandard animals for sacrifice. It means they're bringing their second best. Which I think comes back to the, you know, to the fact of does it matter anymore? We're just doing these things to doing these things. Does it matter? Do you care? So God is in this section of concern for offerings. And here is this part in, you know, in, in chapter 3 about this messenger and the Lord coming. And it, it, I think it's so neat that in God's concern for the offerings of people, he presents an offering. Jesus, the Messiah. It's reconfigured hope. Reconfigured peace. Peace that has little to do with the nations, the power, or the land. And it really is a surprise. It's fascinating that, you know, in this section of offerings, where God has been bringing charges about the second-rate manner in which offerings are made, there's this statement by God about one who is to be God's offering. The Advent theme. The answer to Israel's question of, are we enough? Do we matter? 
And in that, God's answer in Jesus is, you matter so much that I will become one of you, the one who you desire. I will come and heal you, I will teach you, and I will die for you. All of the things that we haven't been doing is what I'm going to come and do for you. Peace will come upon suddenly, and you will say, Yahweh, you are enough. And I will say, you are enough. And it's like the embracing or the knowing of two lovers again that have moved from this place of despair and despondency into a place, a place of embracing and rejoicing in who each other is. A while ago, I spoke um, uh, on Genesis and I was talking about the response that Yahweh gave to Moses when, when Moses asked, what is your name? When I go to the people, what shall I call you? And God's response was, I am who I am. And if anybody remembers back, probably not. <laughs> but the better translation of this phrase could be, I will be who I will be, or I will become who you need me to be. Not in a selfish kind of way, but God in that phrase is saying, I will become what you need. And in this instance again in Malachi, in this situation that's so painful, God is saying, I will send one who will come suddenly and I will be who you need. Joe spoke on righteousness last week, righteousness. And he talked about being able to get into the carnival. And God provides that ticket again to the show. And I think this is kind of what the heart of Malachi is. The answers to the question of do we matter and does God care? We don't quite know how to measure up. The nagging questions at our center, am I good enough and do I measure up? I thought, what is the point of getting into the carnival? What is the point of just being in the carnival? Just to be there? Just to make it? Just to show up? But I think it's more than that. I think the point of getting into the carnival is to embrace the being of each other and to embrace the being with God, not just to get into the show and say we made it. It's the embrace of two lovers saying, I know who you are, I know you, and I am with you. And I believe that God is still involved in this kind of creation, salvation, peace, shalom journey that we're all on. The people embraced the being with God in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. They know that Yahweh cares, and that is enough. No matter what, it is enough. And in one of my readings I came across this, there's an inscription carved into a wall of a concentration camp. Hmm. Did I push the wrong one? It's gone? Oh, dang it. Okay, so this is the inscription. And it's written by a prisoner in a concentration camp and, in camp, and it's inscribed, you know, it's carved into the wall of, in some place in this camp, and it reads, O Lord, when I shall come into glory, into your kingdom, do not remember only the men of goodwill. Remember also the men of evil. May they be remembered not only for their acts of cruelty in this camp, the evil they have done to us prisoners, but balanced against their cruelty the fruits we have reaped under the stress and in the pain, the comradeship, the courage, 
the greatness of heart. The humility and patience which have borne us and become part of our lives because we have suffered at their hands. May the memory of us not be a nightmare to them when they stand in judgment. May all that we suffered be acceptable to you as a ransom for them. And I marveled at this statement when I read it. I don't know how this person got there. But to be able to stand at that much of a beating from fellow man and say this, that what you did to me was good because it allowed me to become a better person and may God take that into account when we both meet him. This is the act of being embraced and embracing God as, a, as everything. How one was able to say this is, it's a knowing deeply of God and being known. It's those two lovers being reconciled through Jesus and each saying, no matter what, you're enough for me. And I also believe that that same is available for each one of us. Maybe we haven't learned it quite that well, but, and I have example from my own life story about this, and it's a story of my, me and my father, and as a, as a young boy, I knew dad, and he was dad, and he was great, and then as I grew older, we grew apart, and I had no idea that dad cared for me at all. He was a very, quite a hard man. And so there was this break in relationship, and a difficult time. I don't remember having a father really through a, a part of my childhood. And then at 19, I ran into Jesus, and so did my father, and I got this father back. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a great story. We had this good relationship after that, except unfortunately it's not the end of the story. When he got old, and he got Parkinson's, and my life got super busy, and I ignored my father in his home. And he was eventually sent away, you know, we had to put him in a, in a home, and there wasn't too much left of him, but I just, I showed up once in a while, not very often. And later on, this caught up to me. And there was a church service here, I was at the back, and it was, a, it was an evening service, I think, it was all about solitude, and I love solitude stuff. And I, it was like God brought this to my remembrance about the, and it was just painful, and I, and I sat at the back of the ch church here, and I just wept, and I wept. Because I was in a, in a prison of my own making and not able to get out. There's nothing I can do to get out of this. Nothing, nothing I can do. It's gone. It's over. It's done. My father's gone. Speed ahead about six or eight months later, or maybe it was even more, a year. Wendy says, let's go to a show tonight. I said, okay. We're on our way to the show, and it's this um, show called I Can Only Imagine. I don't know if you know the Christian song, I Can Only Imagine. And the story behind it is the story of this father and his son, and a, a very abusive father, and the story of Jesus, and they come together. And halfway to the, the movie, I realized, oh no, this is, this is not good. I'm not going to make it because of this weight. So we get to the movie, and I managed to hold it together. I'm good, I'm good. Made it, made it, made it. Got into the car, and I fell apart. I absolutely fell apart. I'm sobbing in the car. And he's like, what, what's, what's going on? And, and she knew about some stuff, so... You know, she's holding my hand, and I'm just, I'm in a prison that I cannot get out of. I've made it myself, and there's nothing I can do, and there's nowhere I can go. There's no peace. I'm in jail, and I cannot resolve this. Dang. I have to live with this for the rest of my life. And at that instant, there was a voice that spoke into my heart, and I like to call it the Spirit of God. You can take it out what, what you think. 
but it was the words that say, let it go. I, I yelled out, how can I let it go? I can't let it go. And it was like God said, but I forgive you. And I could almost see my dad standing behind Jesus, saying, nodding and saying, I forgive you. Who's the only person that doesn't forgive you? Well, that's me. And it dawned on me. I've made my own jail. Granted, it was from you know, mistakes in my past. And it was like the door opened to a jail and I walked out. There's still a scar from that. But I walked out of jail. And there was this incredible, surprising peace where there shouldn't have been any. And it was, it was good. And I think we all have those kinds of experiences. We can experience those things. Unexpected, surprising peace where God shows up and does something that we don't imagine. That God is enough and that we're enough for him. Unexpected peace given by God.